Welcome, everyone, to the Beyond the White Coat podcast. On today's episode, we're furthering our discussion on race-conscious admissions, a complex and important topic within higher education. In part two of our discussion, we will explore the social and advisory impacts surrounding the use of race as a factor in college and graduate school admissions. We hope you enjoy our conversation as we delve into the multifaceted dimensions of this practice and its impact on creating a more equitable and diverse educational landscape. Facilitating our discussion today is our illustrious host, Dr. David Scorton, President and CEO of AAMC, which represents the nation's medical schools, teaching hospitals and health systems, and academic societies. David began his leadership of AAMC in July of 2019 after a distinguished career in government, higher education, and medicine. And in his first year at the AAMC, he addressed social issues that affect health, guided us through a global pandemic, and built a multi-year strategic plan to tackle the nation's most intractable challenges in health and healthcare, working to make academic medicine more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for hosting today. Uh, joining David today are two wonderful guests. First, Dr. June Kim. He's the Senior Director and Instructor of Post-Baccalaureate Programs at Keck Graduate Institute. And in his role, Dr. Kim advises students and coordinates the program's activities, events, and visiting lectures. Prior to arriving at KGI, Dr. Kim served as an assistant director in the Office of Academic Advising at the University of Southern California. This past September 2022, Dr. Kim was named president-elect of NAAHP, National Association of Advisors of Health Professions. He holds a BA in psychology from UCLA and an MED in higher education and an EDD in educational leadership with a concentration in educational psychology from USC. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Thank you so much for joining us today. And last but certainly not least, Kira Tyler, Senior Director of Educational Consulting at Bright Horizons College Coach. There, she engages with thousands of families to support their navigation of the college admissions process, focusing on curriculum planning and understanding the college essay, amongst many other things. Prior to working at College Coach, Kira began in admissions at Brandeis University, where she spearheaded the school's student of color recruitment effort. Kira holds a Bachelor of Music and Flute Performance from Northwestern University and a Master of Education in Higher Education from the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Welcome, Kira. Welcome, Dr. Kim. David, as I kick it over to you, how do you feel having a fellow Northwestern flutist on today's episode? Well, thanks, Aaron. I, I, I feel intimidated because Kira has a, a degree in flute performance. And my flute performance has garnered me a lot of uh, critiques from people I admire, such as keep your day job, keep practicing, don't give up yet. So I'm a little intimidated, but uh, it's such a pleasure to have a fellow, uh, fellow alum uh, here. Same. Well, thanks a lot, Kira and June. It's uh, fabulous to have you here. And um, I uh, have a little way I want to start this off and ask you whether you sort of buy, buy this a set of assertions or not. Um, I followed the literature about uh, the effects of diversity in a wide variety of settings for decades. And this is not a political statement. This is not a statement that has to do uh, really with any judicial decision. We'll get to that later or anything else. But I've been impressed for a very long time that in any setting you want to consider, whether it's a team trying to make a decision, whether it's peer-to-peer -peer learning in educational setting far before medical school, or any other setting, diversity just works. Diversity just works. It brings better decisions. It brings more full peer-to-peer -peer learning, more three-dimensional peer-to-peer learning. And in healthcare, it brings better health, not only to disadvantaged populations, but to everyone. So I wanna ask you first whether you uh, accept or not the idea that diversity just works every, every which way you look at it and everywhere that you look at it, because I wanna get into critiques of diversity. And first I wanna just get a feel from two people who are expert in areas that I am not expert. So Kira, could we start with you? Sure. Yeah, I, I enthusiastically agree that diversity is paramount in all of those settings that you named, David. But um, from my perspective, certainly educational circles, um, 
you know, my high school students are often telling me that's what they're, one of the things they're most looking forward to when they go to college. Um, and certainly um, as a flute performance major, I was absolutely a minority within my group, but I think that um, all of my colleagues would agree that they benefited from my perspective that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Um, and, and certainly within the classical musical field, I, I can't say that enough. So I would agree in all aspects and, and enthusiastic yes. Thank you, Kira. June, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think diversity is one of those things that it would be hard, we would be hard pressed to find examples where it would actually be a negative. Diversity in every way that I, I when you were speaking, David, I, I thought of even uh, the meals that I eat. I don't want to eat my favorite meal every day. Um, now, that's a, a very more practical, but in terms of the dynamics of groups and teams, we know that diversity is absolutely essential. Every team sport that I grew up watching, playing, relies heavily on the differences and the talents and the different strengths. In other words, the diversity is what directly leads to the success uh, for everyone. I think that's the key part that I think we always need to remind ourselves that diversity benefits everyone. Well, thanks, Kira and June. And, and the reason I asked you that, and actually the reason we're having this wonderful discussion today and so so thrilled to have you here, um, I'll share my perspective on it real quick, if you don't mind a quick personal story. So the year of my first uh, faculty appointment, which is in 1979-80 at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa, that year, of all of the students in MD-granting medical schools in the U.S., all, all four years, 3.1% were black men, 1979-1980. Last year's data that we collect, that's 2022-2023, the percentage, 3.1%. So 42 years of my career so far, in that one demographic, in that one demographic, we have made no progress. We made some progress in other demographics and in others, you know, very, very little such in indigenous groups, for example. So, you know, taking a, a, a trip back to those days of yesteryear, the concept of equal opportunity and race conscious admissions came up. And you both have expertise in areas that I don't have any expertise in, and that is really earlier in the educational pathway, and, and by, by the nature of what you both do, looking way earlier in the pathway, which is where I think we need to look if we're really gonna make a difference going forward. So I'd love to hear from both of you about your thoughts about that concept of equal opportunity and where race conscious admissions sort of came from. Where did this concept come from? It's not something that we just dreamed up a few years ago. and. Um, June, would you want to kick that one off? Sure. Um, and just to give a little context, you know, I've been very fortunate that uh, in my 23 years of experience in education, it's been a mix. I mean, it's been the vast majority, 20 of it has been higher education. But for three years, I spent in middle school and high school. So uh, from that perspective, um, I think this is where, you know, uh, we clearly recognize the value and importance of the diversity um, but like you mentioned, we need to go earlier. It doesn't just happen overnight. It starts at a very young age. There's plenty of literature to, to show how incredibly influential early childhood education is on the future. So while we sometimes get so focused uh, near the end, if you will, so for example, like a sporting event, perhaps one player missed a free throw and that led to the loss for the team, in actuality, it wasn't just that player. We got to go much further and look at the entire game. And so it, it, it's almost a, a availability heuristic where our brains uh, just immediately jump to what's most proximal. And so I absolutely saw the, the differences. I mean, we all know that depending on where you live is highly correlated with the quality of the early education you're going to receive. So uh, that's been my experience and observation. Thanks, June. And Kira, your, your work is so exemplary and really is relevant to this. I'm very, very interested in your wisdom on this. Any thoughts, please? Yeah, I, I, in the work that I do, obviously, um, and, and when I did my work prior um, as an admission officer at Brandeis, um, 
it really spoke to me the the way that education uh, plays a role in later success, right? And that the more that we can expose people to diverse perspectives, um, it's not necessarily to change their mind all the time, but certainly exposure and an understanding of someone else's circumstance and plight and joys and successes, um, you know, benefits everyone. Um, in my current role, you know, the majority of my students are high school aged. I spend my days with teenagers and um, they're pretty great. And I think um, they are so savvy, partially because those that aren't available, they don't have the opportunity to experience diversity live. You know, they have technology in a way that we never had, right? Like if someone right, wasn't next right. door to me or in my classroom, um, then I didn't know their perspective because we didn't have that. And so I think in some ways, like it has made them hungry for that, it, it, as they would say, IRL in real life to see sometimes what they are able to experience <laughs> virtually. They want to experience in their educational perspective. I currently serve on my community's um, uh, public school board, and I was the president for four years. I'm out of that role as of May. And um, so I think of it even like way before that, like June said, for early education, my town, we have a free preschool that starts at three. And, you know, that's not too late, but that's like not too early either. So I think better exposure to diversity absolutely um, helps us get to more equitable education. Um, we don't always want equal, right? We want equitable, so. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for making me even more hip than I already am, if you can imagine that. <laughs> IRL, wow, now I know about IRL. I'm gonna start dropping that like everywhere I go, so thank you. Feel free thank to take it. <laughs> okay, all right, I'll give you all the credit. Well, here we are, uh, just a short time after the Supreme Court of the United States made a decision in higher education to take away the use of race as one factor among many in, in that narrow part that is higher education admission. And of course, the reason we're doing this at a podcast coming from the Association of American Medical Colleges is that we're very concerned, I'm very concerned, that that's going to have a negative effect on the public health. Why? Because as you both mentioned, there's a lot of data and research on the benefits of diversity in all kinds of teams. And that's also true for, uh, for, for healthcare. It's true for the education in medical school. It's true for the education of those who are going to do research, that research teams do better when they're, when they're diverse. So here we are. And that uh, decision took that one factor away from us. But nothing in that decision took away from us the goal of diversifying. Uh, the, the population in, in school or in the healthcare field as a subset. And nothing in there told us that we can't have a goal of, of diversity in, in our mission statements, but it's how we get there. So I'd love to have your uh, personal reactions, personal or professional, either or both, how you felt and how you feel now in this really quite new environment. Now, those of you who are in states like, uh, like uh, June, where there's been a ban since 96, I guess, roughly, um, have already been in an environment sort of like that, but now we're in a national environment. So Kira, if you could start, um, what was your reaction with the court's decision? What are you thinking now about this new, new world we're living in? Yeah, so, you know, my reaction initially was, okay, it's happened. I think most of us who do this, who are adjacent to this kind of work, um, had been preparing for it. What I found was that the mm -hmm. reality hit me emotionally in a way that I was surprised by. Um, it's one thing to, to say yes or no, right? To have a finite decision. It's a totally different animal to read people's reasoning and arguments for or against. And I will say, mm -hmm. I think that, not I think, I know, that is what made me feel um, really upset, to be honest, um, because to read the statements from the justices about why they don't believe um, that race conscious admissions is necessary anymore, 
you know, David, you just gave a, a stat over a 40 plus year period and it's like stagnant or a, a tenth of a percent lower, right? So like clearly we haven't gotten there. And so I think to hear some of the rationale and the, uh, the attempt to um, explain their rationale was pretty upsetting. Um, where I am now is uh, I'm a problem solver. Um, and so what does this mean for my students moving forward um, is the way that I have really been thinking about it um, myself and my team. And, you know, where we have landed is that um, I will say that I still am in tune with the admission community and I know that they are they are wanting a diverse class, right? So everybody is still on that wavelength. And um, I think they're just going to try to be a little savvier about how to achieve that. My worry, and you know, I, I live in a state that I, I'm a native Chicagoan, native Illinoisan, I'm happy to be here. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I haven't lived through what California has lived through, but certainly being almost next door to Michigan, watching them try to figure this out. I will say, I know that the mountain is very high. It's a heavy lift that takes a fair amount of resources and time and buy-in. And my, I think my concern is like, will people have the appetite equally um, to be able to invest resources to continue to aim for diversity, which I think we all believe is still important to higher education. Carol, thank you. That was such a, a, a beautifully stated um, evolution of sort of a part of your emotional journey since the day of the, the decision. And um, I, um, I tend to be an optimist and try to be a problem solver. And, and you, you all are very exemplary in that way. And as I read the decision, I, I saw evidence that there was an appreciation of the importance of diversity, but they want us to achieve it in, in ways that are different than, than we did before. And so we have to move forward. I'm the farthest thing in the world from a legal expert, but I think that we have to obviously want to follow the law, stay within the dictates of the court, but still achieve this mission that we believe there's so much evidence to, to bring us in the direction of. So June, what, what are your thoughts since yeah, the decision? Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. I think that's how I interpreted the, the decision. It wasn't a strike down of diversity itself. It wasn't how we get there. And so I was, uh, I'm also a very strong optimist. And so uh, what, what I, my reaction was, okay, this just means that we need to be creative. Uh, we need to approach this in almost a diverse approach to get to the goal of <laughs> diversity. Um, and you're absolutely right, David. You know, California, we have banned affirmative action back in, uh, I believe it was 96. I think you're right. Um, and we just have to find different ways. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes education just amazingly what it is. It's problem solving. You know, I think for our learners today, it's changed so much. Education isn't about just knowledge acquisition because any student with a phone has all the knowledge that they need right at their fingertips. So we really need to go towards problem solving. And oftentimes things that seem, you know, very easy, simple fixes turn out to be ironically the most difficult. And so I share in your concerns. However, I'm very hopeful that we will find other ways to uh, achieve it. And even towards that end, you know, I, I think about um, the, the phrase pursuit of excellence. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever achieve and get and arrive at excellence and say, okay, we're here, we're done. It truly is the pursuit and the process. And that is an advice that I share with all my students that, you know, when you are quote, going into medicine, there isn't going to be this point that you achieve and say, well, I'm done. I'm going to call it a day. It is a practice. You're con continuously learning, learning from your mistakes. And so towards that end, I almost see this this uh, process of achieving diversity in a very parallel way where we're never going to get to this point. We say, oh, we, we've achieved it. We've achieved perfect parity. We can now say mission accomplished. It is this process. And I think that process, and I'm very hopeful, is what will draw all of us together. Maybe I'm, that's just wishful thinking, but you know, someone's got to do it. And so I'm going to do that. 
I think it's cool. I think you're both very uplifting. I'm, I'm, I'm just learning from you. I'm, I'm loving hearing this stuff. But now let's take a look at some of the criticisms that have been leveled against things like race conscious admissions, because we have to pay attention to all, all the folks we interact with. Not everybody agrees with me anyway. Um, and so what about uh, people who say that uh, race conscious admissions uh, perpetuates uh, stereotypes? that it causes discrimination against other groups. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard a lot about this. Um, June, and then, and then Kira, if we can go in that order. Um, what's, your, what's your take on that? Because uh, uh, it's a big country, complicated country, a lot of people with a lot of different opinions. And sure. I do hear those, those two things. I'm curious what your thoughts are, both about uh, m- you know, maintaining and perpetuating stereotypes on the one hand, and then causing some sort of discrimination in another direction that we also don't want. June? Sure. So stereotypes um, exist. We, we know they exist, and it, they, they exist for a reason, that there's a little, just enough of a truthism for it to continue to exist. I mean, if it was completely false, then it would cease to, to exist. But with all of that said, so, I mean, I think this is one of those uh, things where um, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what, what is the goal? Because I think that's the part where it's easiest to arrive at a common ground. But how do we achieve that? Um, and I think that's where uh, we run into a lot of challenges because many of us look at education, at least higher education, um, for that matter, even K through 12, as a closed system. But especially so in higher education. Because when a seat is uh, allocated for a particular applicant, that's one less seat available for other applicants. And so I, I, I think there's this, um, you know, a, a, an environment where um, unfortunately uh, competition seems to be the, the, the profound message. Um, I mean, we already know that uh, very often uh, having worked with some of the high school students that are getting ready for college, they are uh, focused on the, the acceptance rates. And that's some of it is just human nature. You know, we don't sure. we all want to go to a school that's highly su- uh, selective, 12 percent acceptance rate. No one wants to go to the college that has 100 percent acceptance rate. And so I think we need to work on shifting our focus and then also looking at, you know, why are we so set on? Because, you know, one of the things that I was astonished to learn is how many choices I was not born in the U.S. as an immigrant when I came to this country and and realized there's over 3,000 colleges and universities. That's Mm. insane. That's more options than toothpaste or any other personal commercial product. That's a lot of choices. But yet, I think for many students and families, we tend to focus on a few because we do have ourselves convinced that the opportunities are different depending on where, which colleges you go to. So I think if, if we can really uh, highlight and build up and help students and families to understand those opportunities, they're there for the taking. Um, I, I just, you know, one of the things I absolutely believe is to empower our students to go from a recipient of their education to be an active participant. So I, I hope I answered your question somewhere in there. It's just, everything is so interconnected. And when we're talking about this topic, so. Yeah, super helpful. Uh, Kira, how about your thoughts on some of these negative aspects that we hear about the sort of uh, negative side of uh, race conscious admission? I mean, there, there are people in my own extended family who would say, you know, that, um, it's stereotypes. I'll, I'll share my own experience as a black person. It stereotypes black people into, you know, people believing that they're not there for the right reason. And I, that is like a little hot button for me because people have said that to me. Um, you know, I, you will appreciate this, David, as a fellow musician. I went to Interlock and Arts Camp when I was in middle school. Uh-huh um for three summers i loved it it's my it continues to be my happy place i mean i was told there i was 13 years old excited to be away in a cabin living my dream like playing great orchestra music um getting to the finals of a concerto contest and still people were like well you're only in that because you're black and i'm like you've got to be kidding me i mean of all the choices clearly that is absolutely not it um, and that is something that has sort of like followed me 
throughout my career, as June said, you know, people clamoring for these very selective um, universities. That's my whole job, right? I mean, I have degrees from those places that people really want them mm. from. Um, but I only believe that those stereotypes exist if you believe in them. I don't believe in them. I know my excellence. I know the people who look like me, their excellence as well. Um, and I think it shows not only in the classroom and their, you know, I mean, I've read files. These kids are smart. They've earned their spot. Um, and I think it's also, um, it is a little insulting too when it's like, you can look at the data. You know, if we look at the data in an MIT, it's like 40% Asian American. Like I, I'm not taking up your spot. You know, there's like under 8% African-American. Like, I, I'm not taking up your spot. You shouldn't have to worry about me. So I think, you know, there's data that, that like points this out um, that, um, you know, people aren't there just to fill a quota or what. It's like, and the stereotypes I don't believe are true because if the stereotypes applied to just me, I could apply them to other people in terms of why they are also there. And so I just, I really don't believe in that. Um, I will say something just in, in response to a, a point June made. It's a good one of um, my job is, uh, it's expectation setting to some extent, right? It's helping people understand sure. the educational right. experience that they want to have and trying to match that up with acceptable places that they'll feel good about attending, right? Many people do want to attend a school that it, that denies more people than it accepts. It's like people clamoring for a Birkin bag or a Gucci flat or, you know, something like that. Like it's out of your reach and you want it so bad. And then you work for it and you like, it's that sort of psychology, right? You want what is out of reach for most. Um, but what I will say is that, and so that doesn't work for most people, right? There are not enough seats for all of the qualified people. The one thing that I will say, mm. though, is that we do know that for certain ethnic and racial groups, attending a school like a Cornell or a Northwestern or a USC or a Stanford does yield itself with higher earnings, better career potential for Black students, Indigenous students. Like, so there there is evidence that supports for better or for worse, they do get a beautiful effect um, in a way that maybe doesn't uh, come with white students in the same way. Um, so I, I don't want to pretend like there isn't something different there for some people um, because there there is um, right or wrong. There is so. But I don't buy the stereotypes. It's such such wisdom, and you know what I worry about um, in in these kinds of stereotyping things is that it feeds into what already occurs that is imposter syndrome. That um, a lot of a lot of folks I I uh, come from a family where there was no no doctors and no, nobody finished the college degree in my family before I did anything like that, and I I had imposter syndrome like crazy. And um, I, I still do at times. I, I'm, I'm glad to admit that publicly. But I can't imagine all the privilege and advantages that I have. Can't imagine the severity of imposter syndrome and how that must be made worse if someone's saying, hey, you know, really don't belong there. You're just there because of A or B or C. When a lot of, a lot of these individuals, people I know, have already told me, hey, I'm trying to keep my emotional head above water to think about myself as being able to get there and setting expectations that you both have talked about and alluded to. There's a lot of research in education to show that if you expect more of someone, they will eventually expect more of themselves and they'll achieve more. And so it's, it's beautiful that people like you are actually getting it done, getting it done. We're the beneficiaries in medical schools because if you don't get it done at the levels and going way back in the pathway, we're definitely not going to solve these problems, you know, in the third or fourth year of college. At least I, I don't, I don't think so. So that's super helpful. Now, um, thinking about going forward now, and uh, sort of the long-term impact of the things that we're wanting to do. And let's just be positive and say that because of the optimism and strength of character of people like you and a lot of folks standing behind you, so to speak. 
that we do make make progress. Different ways of doing it. Next time, you know, someone my age talks about what the trajectory has been, it'll look better. And it does look better for some demographics, but in my view, just not not better enough. So what do you see as the as the as the pathway forward that we can get to a point where we can look back in a conversation like this, uh, say five or 10 years from now and say, you know, wow, we, we actually started to make some progress. Give us a little bit of a, of a look at what we could be thinking about, because I need that optimism. I need that wisdom. I need that view toward the future. And Kira, can we start with you? Yeah. Um, my colleagues will be, or not my colleagues, my family will be so amused to find that I'm so positive and sunny about this because sometimes I'm a burn it all down <laughs> kind of person, but um, I'm coming around and here, I mean, you know, I have a 13 year old. I try to be super positive and optimistic about this for her because to your point, David, five to 10 years, like five years, she will be going to college. Right. Um, and I want the, I want the promise of higher education to be there for her, which is the opportunity to, to like meet and be exposed, find a passion. Hopefully that turns into a career, meet lifelong friends. Like that's what I want for her. But from this angle, I would say that the path forward and what I am telling my families is don't make any sudden moves. Don't ask your kids to be anybody that they're not. That if your student is involved in you know, some sort of racial or ethnic or cultural activity, don't tell them not to do it. They should still do it, right? For my admission colleagues who, by the way, COVID in particular was really hard on undergraduate admission offices in a way that I don't believe that people truly understand. There's not a lot of institutional knowledge that was maintained in the last like five to eight years. And so this is a heavy lift for schools to now have to also think about and consider. But for those folks, I would say all those schools that you put off visiting when you're fall and your spring travel, all those high schools that you were like, I don't have time. They don't send kids to us. You have to go visit. That's where the kids are that you want, right? You have to, it's like, it's like campaigning shoe leather. That's what you have to do. You have to go out there. You got to meet people. You need to go to different college fairs, shake other people's hands, partner with CBOs. That's what I think the path forward is. And for parents, I think the path forward is similar to what June said, which is what I am always trying to help people understand. There is not one way, or for those of us familiar with the Ivies, there are not one of eight schools or one of 15 schools that are gonna get you to where you wanna go. There are 3,600 plus universities and colleges out there. The overwhelming majority of them, except over 70%, see what's out there. That's that's my path forward. I hope a lot of people will get to listen to both of you because these are very, very uplifting. June, your thoughts. Yeah, so I think we um, have to examine different parts of the system. And so let me focus on the higher education part. I mean, only because here we are, we are talking about medical school, admissions and representation. You know, uh, what I have observed, having been in this space now for almost 20 years, is that uh, mentorship is so critical to the success of our students in higher education. And for those that want to pursue health professions, I mean, it, I mean, talk about a, a higher bar and, and more maturation that's necessary because those might not appear on an MCAT uh, exam, but certainly a very right. important part for the journey. And so what I've observed, and this is one of my ambitious goals as uh, president of NAAHP, is to help bring visibility and the uh, importance, the vital role that pre-health advisors play. Because currently mm -hmm. we have a systematic sort of um, weakness in our system. What I mean by that is this, when you look at the longevity of these pre-health advisors slash mentors, the schools that have the students that need the most assistance and mentorship have the shortest tenure. It's a revolving door for those pre-health advisors. They come in, they're optimistic, they want to make a difference, they work for a couple of years, they gain some experience, and there's really no career progression for them. I mean, yes, you can mm -hmm. sort of, you know, thanks to NACADA, NACADA is, uh, is the professional association for academic advising, 
that they have uh, you know established sort of a parallel path, sort of like the faculty career track, where you have you know an assistant, associate, and then full professor or full advisor. Uh, but our public schools, the schools where we have those students that need the most help, those advisors are not there for a very long time. And what do we know also about students who want to apply to medical school? They're going to need letters. They're going to need letters from advisors that says, I've known this student for four years, three years. But if those advisors at the public universities are only there for a year or two, uh, that's not good for them. And then on the flip side, the students who, you know, let's say have had a lot of the advantages and resources, they attend a small private liberal. Now, I don't want to just oversimplify and say it's public and private, but just sure. as an illustration, you know, these private schools that tend to use faculty advisors and mentors, they're a tenure track faculty. They're not going anywhere. So they've been there for years. They're, they've been there for decades. So it's, it's more likely that they are in a position to um, even connect students to former students, to other alums. And so this pre-health advising is so key. And, and that's why I said what I said. Uh, I hope to see pre-health advising elevated, a lot of spotlight, how critical and important it is. And it's one of the reasons why I, I got involved with the Action Collaborative through the AAMC is that you know this is something where if we uh, properly invest in, uh, and focus all of our efforts, we can make a true difference. That's one place in the system. But as I had began my response, there's multiple places. But for that point, that's one place where we can really make a difference. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you're, you're making me more optimistic by the minute listening to you for real, for real. And, you know, eventually, from, from the narrower point of view of, of medical schools, I'm thinking about health equity. I'm thinking about the things that affect people's health and getting them lined up at the starting line, sort of, you know, shoulder to shoulder, so to speak. And um, I'm thinking about poverty, thinking about racism, all these things that really, really make it hard for people to get to that starting line. I'm thinking the work that you all are doing and the folks way before medical school and way before people are used to even thinking about opportunities or possibilities for that young person and their family. We need to think about the positive effects that'll happen if your ideas come through. I, I, I think it's just, just terrific. Now, um, we're getting toward the end. And uh, I wanted to ask, uh, before we sort of summarize, if there's any things that you would want to tell folks in the medical schools, folks in the medical schools, a message to the medical school faculty, to those who are thinking about the admissions in the medical school. It's a really great opportunity for us to be able to connect you and your wisdom and your experience with those folks in our organization out, out in those 157 medical schools. If you'd like to say something to those folks, what, what might it be? Uh, June, you could go first if you sure, don't mind. And, then sure. Kira. and I work with many of these wonderful colleagues. Uh, hats off to you. You do a very important work. You already knew that. Uh, you literally uh, influence and shape the uh, healthcare uh, workforce. And so it's an incredible uh, responsibility. It's a very difficult task because you're also managing just the sheer logistics. I mean, we're not exaggerating when we say medical schools receive thousands and thousands of applicants. And so to try to sift through that, to, to make the best decision uh, is an incredible undertaking. So um, I definitely want to recognize that. But with that said, I think this is where we have to try to strike this balance as best as we can. And I think when we try to use a fixed methodology, an algorithm or anything that leans slightly a little more towards efficiency because sometimes efficiency is just a euphemism to help us get the job done quicker and not necessarily qualitatively better but certainly quantitatively get it done quicker i think you want to definitely keep track um, i think data driven decisions i mean kind of goes without saying is absolutely important and i feel like sometimes you have chosen certain practices not based on evidence or data but maybe just through your own experiences, which again, I mean, we're all guilty of. I know I certainly make decisions in my role at work based upon my experiences. But I think this is why, again, we started this conversation from the very beginning. Diversity, diversity, diversity. So that this is where I, as the director of a program, cannot just begin and end with myself, but I would reach out to colleagues, both within our institution as well 
as across the country to get their input. So just really examine your processes. Uh, always look to improve. Don't just, you know, that's the way we've been doing it all the time. Um, and I, I would just challenge every medical school out there because I think sometimes we in higher education have a tendency to kind of wait and see who else is doing what. Let, let's wait for them to test it out first and then see if it works, then we'll adopt it. But, you know, be the trailblazer, you know, excellence and, and, and being a leader is about taking risks. So I challenge all the medical schools out there, be the best medical school you can be. I think there's a real temptation sometimes where we set another peer uh, program or institution and we strive and try to be them. And, and, you know, that's not authentic. Be the best version of yourself that you can be. That would be my words to the medical school colleagues. Thank you so much, Kira, um, from, from your heart and mind to the medical school. Yeah. So, um, you know, I advise a lot of students. I'm like delighted to hear a conversation about pre-health advising. It is critical. And when I worked at Brandeis, it was obviously really important. We had really good pre-health advising. And I know, you know, in working with a broader, um, you know, group of students that that's not always the case. So um, what I would really continue to appreciate is medical schools admitting students who have other academic interests outside of uh, STEM, right? Like in my graduating class, probably about a quarter of them have gone on to medical school. And I love that, um, you know, someone whose passion is art history or something else, um, you know, can uh, still with the proper coursework and preparation be a contender for med school. I really, please continue to do that. Um, I would say my personal plea as someone who's given birth before is like, please continue um, or increase your awareness around black maternal health. Um, you know, it is terrifying watching, um, having experienced small shades of fear around being a black woman, giving birth in a hospital setting. Um, and so, you know, mine turned out just fine. I wound up having a wonderful physician, um, deliver my daughter, but, um, I, it is fearful as I think about particularly younger friends who are still in childbearing age. I have a, you know, a niece in her twenties and, you know, younger cousins. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a real acute thing that I would beg um, people to continue to consider um, in their uh, medical school training and curriculum is, um, you know, and that I worry about with the recent ruling, right, um, is that we want to continue to support, um, you know, understanding people's different ethnic and diverse perspectives, um, because it can be really critical to the care that they receive. So um, those, those would be my two things. Thank you, Kara. That's just great. And I'll I'll put two quick plugs in for AMC programs and the producer in post-production will decide whether they make it. Um, <clears throat> one is that we do have an initiative called FRAME, F-R-A-H-M-E, the fundamental role of the arts and humanities in medical education run by Dr. Lisa Howley. And so that's right directly in that, in that sweet spot that you talked about, Kira, thank you. Sure. And we also have our Center for Health Justice run by Dr. Philip Alberti and they have a big ongoing uh, effort on uh, maternal health. And so um, I, I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> Just to summarize, this has been, from my point of view, fascinating, a hugely valuable conversation. And it's good to learn from folks who have a variety of skill sets that I can learn a lot from. The value you see in diversity all the way across the board, the history of what's been going on for decades, the reaction followed up by optimism to the change that we are all living with now from the Supreme Court, and the optimism and the certainty that we can move forward and that we can do better even than we did before this decision to get to a place that we just need to be because diversity just works. And so I'm, I'm hugely grateful to both of you for taking the time to be with us and asking my fabulous producer, Aaron Diller to come on and, um, and take it from thank here. You, David, Aaron, thank, thank you, David. Thank you, June. Thank you, Kira. We truly appreciate this fantastic follow-up conversation about the social and advisory impacts of race-conscious admissions. Um, I learned a lot just in from the perspective of both, you know, incoming college, you know, attendees as well as medical school and health professions. 
uh, just in general. And I, I do understand how important uh, we, you know, this decision is, is in terms of moving forward and our just the progression of, of health uh, in general and just the diversity of health care. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, we do have one last question or just one last question for the group. Uh, and it's for our segment called the Prescription for Relaxation. Uh, and then this is something to get gain an insight on what you do to relax. Could be TV show, music, book, something artistic, an activity or hobby that you may have uh, that just helps you unplug, unwind, and just regather yourself, recollect, re-energize, uh, or as they say, refill your cup um, as all of as both of you pour into so many other people uh, with what you do with your career. So starting off with Kira. What would be your prescription for relaxation uh, currently? Um, <laughs> um, well, I have a, I have a puppy and probably, you know, his little puppy paws, um, just like spending time with my dog is a prescription for relaxation. I will also say, um, as I said before, I have a 13 year old. She's phenomenal. She's an aspiring actress. Um, we love to sing together. We love to listen to music together. Okay. Um, and um, I love word games. Um, I'll brag on her a little. She went to the National Spelling Bee uh, in June. And okay. so we love word stuff in our house. So every day I will do like an online kind of word thing. And um, yeah, makes me happy. Okay. That's it. Oh, fantastic. We, we thank you for sharing that. June, how about you? What's your prescription for relaxation generally? Yeah, prescription for relaxation. The word relaxation makes me think that it requires little to no thought. It is just something I could go on cruise control. And therefore, my response would be gardening. Just being in the backyard, front yard, just digging the dirt, planting seeds, pruning, uh, harvesting the fruit. I mean, it's gardening has, has really uh, helped me to relax. So that Okay. And is there anything in particular that you like to plant or food, flower or otherwise? Yes. Um, I do love to grow uh, dragon okay. fruits. If you guys know what that mm -hmm. looks like, uh, I'm in California, so we're, we have the right climate mm -hmm. for it. It's uh, it looks very much mm -hmm. like a cactus, uh, but the fruit, which flowers is only open for one wow. day and then the flower wilts and closes. So, but it's a beautiful flower. And if you go to the grocery store, ask for a dragon fruit, there's many different varieties. It's beautiful, beautiful fruit. And so uh, that's okay. my favorite. Well, thank you so much, June. We appreciate that. And David, how about you? What's been on? I know we just talked recently. Uh, so if you have another, or if you have a, an album that you've been listening to or a show that uh, you've been into recently, what about you? You know, one of my favorite, uh, I listen to flute players, uh, Kira, all the time. And um, especially I listen to those in the uh, Latin jazz idiom or jazz idiom uh, because um, of a long story. But anyway, I've had an interest in that for a long time. And um, I was listening to an old album by one of my heroes named Nestor Torres. And um, fabulous, fabulous. And he, yesterday I was listening to a version of the song Europa that Santana recorded mm -hmm. some years ago. And this was a instrumental version done by a flute player. And so I can listen to somebody who really can play the flute expertly. And I'm not talking about me because I don't get the job done. But I love to listen to that. It gives me a lot of joy to hear a woodwind player, especially a flute player, doing it the way it is. Now, though, thanks to Kara, I have a new hobby, and that is picking up hip things. Now IRL, there's going to be no living with me because I am like, Mr. Hip on things like IRL. So that's my new prescription for relaxation, becoming even more hip. Okay. Over Thank to you, you David. Well, we always appreciate that. Uh, Kira, I did have one last question for you, just based on what you said for your prescription. Do you and your daughter have a favorite song that you like to sing, or do you have a carpool karaoke moment that you uh, that is memorable? <laughs> um, she's a Swifty. I'm not really. So I don't okay. sing a lot of Taylor Swift with her, but, um, you know, we love Hamilton. We love West Side. It has to be warmed up and not say love on top, which if okay. any of you know that she modulates up the scale <laughs> like five or six times. And I tap out at the end of the second one. She keeps increasing her octaves. Yeah. 
Hey, Aaron, we got to turn the table, turn the tables on you, Mr. Producer. Aaron, what is your prescription? My, for I have Fair two game. things. One, I love movies and TV. Right now, television-wise, I actually went to go back to watch Black-ish. I know it came out probably about a decade ago. Maybe not even mm. that long. But um, mm -hmm. it's been very interesting watching that. It's almost like a combination of The Cosby Show and Family Matters to a degree. I don't know if I've taken it back too far, but it's just the whole family element and the, just five kids and all of that. Um, so it, it's kind of my mindless TV um, after a long day. And then I also like to go for uh, walks in the city since we live here in D.C. So I walk from where I live all the way over to far northeast and back and just helps clear my mind. So, yeah, that's that's how I do my prescription for relaxation. So thank you, David. I do appreciate that. Um, I, I want to thank everyone again, David, June, Kira, we appreciate your patience. We appreciate you working with us to get this coordinated for today. Your contributions and feedback have been fantastic. We're just looking forward to posting this episode and just, you know, the feedback that we're going to get from our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and as we conclude our discussion on race conscious admissions, uh, as we know, this topic will continue to raise profound questions about equity, diversity, and access to education. <clears throat> and by critically examining these principles, benefits, and critiques, uh, we can, and the implications, I'm sorry, of race-conscious admissions, we can foster a far more informed and nuanced conversation, as we did today, uh, about how we shape educational opportunities for all moving forward. So thank you again. Please join us next time on the next episode of Beyond the White Coat. And thank you. Have a great day.